Well, friends, our scripture reading today comes from the gospel according to John, and I invite you to stand in body or in spirit in honor of our gospel reading this morning. Hear these words from John chapter 1. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. You may be seated. Well, friends, I'm grateful to the Chancel Choir today for beautiful, beautiful music. Um, And I'm grateful to be back with y'all. It's been a while since I've seen some of you, so I'm just looking around, making sure everybody's where they're supposed to be. Over the last several weeks, if you're new or visiting, um, my wife Adair and I, we've been learning what it means to be the parents of a newborn. And it's hard to believe that yesterday, Ben turned six weeks old. Um, and I've been amazed at just how our lives, how much our lives have changed in those six weeks. Y'all, that's, y'all told me it would happen. Um, and I knew it would, but now I really know. Uh, and our life now has this clear before Ben and after Ben. Uh, and I know... A lot of folks like to have their kind of word of the year for a new year, and the primary word for the life of our family after Ben has been this word, deconstruction. Let me tell you what, why. <laughs> Up until now, Darren and I, we've spent our lives building who we are as individuals and who we are together. We've spent our time learning how to build our home and our schedules, which is really important, and our shared life together as a couple. And then you become a parent. And maybe some of you can relate. And so much of that is quickly undone to make room for the new way of existing. It's like this giant spring cleaning has just happened for your whole life. And you you have to clear out non-essentials to make room for the few essentials. For example, putting Christmas away, not important anymore. It's going to be up the whole year. (laughs) Finding time to do laundry is not on our radar. (laughs) Cooking dinner that isn't previously frozen, that's a long shot. So our lives have really been deconstructed. The non-essentials have been eliminated, all to make room for the two most essential things, our new son and the possibility of sleep. (laughs) That's all that matters. (laughs) Everything is taken, everything else is taken a back seat. And of course, that's the case with life in general. Whenever we undergo a certain amount of change, we have to go through a sort of deconstruction, a breaking down of what once was in preparation for what is and what will be. I can think of 
Life for a high schooler going to college, you have to leave a certain amount of things home, at home. Moving into a dorm, you have to simplify. You have to deconstruct. And, and for the college graduate, when you, when you get that diploma and you find a job, you have to deconstruct. You have to put away old things because you've, you've got this new thing, this new schedule, this new wardrobe, this new life. It's the same with marriage. When I got married, deconstruction happened in a major way. And I don't mean just getting rid of my furniture and posters and my favorite pair of pants and things like that. I had to do away with the way I once saw the world as an individual. And I had to incorporate a new way of life centered around a partnership. Of course, there, there, there are also periods of involuntary deconstruction that are not so happy and adventurous. I can think of things like losing a job or, or moving away from community or, or even the death of a loved one. Our lives are marked by moments of major transition and change, and in each instance, whether through joy or pain, there is a deconstruction occurring, a deconstruction of who we once were in order to make room for who we are becoming. And through this deconstruction, I believe that God is working some important reconstruction in us. Susan Beaumont is a Baptist pastor and a church consultant. She also is the author of a book, and I love this title, called How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going. It's a great book. I've read it twice. And in that book, she understands deconstruction like this. She says that all significant transitional experiences follow a process. Something comes to an end and something new emerges. And this process, she says, is the sacred space where the old world is able to fall apart and a bigger world is revealed. One of my new favorite authors uh, is a gardener and a professor. Her name is Lucy Shaw. She's written a book called Water My Soul, and she reminds us that God has written the same process of deconstruction into nature. God knows, she says, that the material from rotting trees and vegetation will make the perfect culture in which seeds and spores can germinate and ferns and mushrooms and spruce seedlings can grow. Deconstruction is a part of life, a part of nature, and it is a sacred process. I'm reminded of the words from Paul to the church in Corinth, if anyone is in Christ, the old is going and the new is here. It seems that deconstruction is required of anyone who follows Jesus as it leads us along the path of growth and newness. In fact, I'd argue that the life of faith, that in the life of faith, deconstruction and reconstruction are necessary. Many times over, God seeks to continually deepen and grow our relationship with him and with one another. And over time, that requires a little bit of unbuilding and some rebuilding. You see this across, in, in big ways across church history, from the Great Schism to the Reformation to the Methodist movement, to name a few moments of enormous deconstruction, yes, but there's also this reconstruction that happens. Even now, over the last several years, I don't know if you've been aware, but there's been a large movement of deconstruction moving through the church, especially in the U.S. Many folks in my generation bracket, millennials, as well as Gen Z, have not necessarily lost their faith in Jesus, but they have lost faith in the church. Because for many of these folks, they see a general disconnect between what Jesus says and how the church acts. And so these folks have left the church and have entered into a period of faith deconstruction, attempting to scrape off the minutiae and non-essentials to try to get to the most essential elements of their faith, to figure out the true heart of what it is that we are to believe. And I'd argue that this is the sort of thing 
that Jesus is on earth for in the first place. Upon Jesus' arrival, it seems that much of the faith practiced by the first century temple religion is too focused on itself and perhaps has forgotten its original reason for existing in the first place. And so Jesus comes along, and across his ministry, he is doing the work of deconstruction. He's working to remove the non-essential when it comes to the faith of his people. For instance, in a conversation about the temple offering, I I wonder if you remember this, he tells folks, yes, the offering is important, but this religious observance is not more important than your relationship with your fellow human being. So if you bring your offering here, but you've got something going on between you and a friend, go fix that and then come back. That's more important. Or what about when, when they're having a conversation about the Sabbath and he tells the religious leaders, of course you can heal on the Sabbath. Are you so worried about observing the Sabbath that if your child fell into a ditch, you wouldn't go and get them out? Of course you would. Don't allow your religious observance to get in the way of caring for people. The Sabbath, after all, was made for you to be a blessing and not a burden. And in one of my favorite moments in the Gospels, Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment of all the 600-plus Mosaic laws and their interpretations? And Jesus responds, it all boils down to this, love God and love each other. That's it. Everything can be summed up in that. Throughout his ministry, Jesus is trying to deconstruct the heavy distracting bureaucracy and dogma and systems that have been built up around first century Judaism in order to simplify and point the people to what really matters, to point people back to the heart of God. And to me, some of the best deconstruction work comes in the calling of his disciples, which is where we are today. At the end of the first chapter of John, Jesus is calling his first disciples. Well, I mean, in the other... In the other Gospels, he calls them. In John, he more or less poaches disciples from John the Baptist. Uh, But in verse 43, having just called Andrew and Simon Peter, Jesus finds Philip and says, follow me. And Philip goes immediately, short and sweet. And afterward, Philip goes to find his, his buddy, Nathaniel. He tells him who he just met, but Nathaniel knows better. You think Jesus, the Nazarene, is the one? The Messiah, somebody from Nazareth? Really? Not a chance. And Philip says, come and see for yourself. I love that. That simple invitation. Sometimes I need a reminder that God can do so much with so little. With just an invitation. Barbara Brown Taylor is one of my favorite preachers, and she says, isn't it true that every one of us arrived at faith because someone told someone who told someone who told us? Maybe all someone said was, come to church with me, or God bless you. In any case, chances are that each of us arrived at faith because someone said something to us, something that soothed us, or angered us, or intrigued us, something that brought us back for more. And Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. And so Nathaniel goes to meet Jesus, and Jesus immediately pays him a compliment. He says, as Nathaniel approaches, there's a real Israelite. That's the real deal. He's a good man. What does that mean? Good question. Well, I think, in effect, Jesus is saying, there's someone who has a heart for the things I'm after, a real Israelite, someone who remembers why we worship Yahweh, why we worship God in the first place. There's someone who can see through the layers upon layers that we've placed over true religion. There's a man that's going to buy what we're talking about. 
He has the same frustrations, the same irritations, and the same hopes and the same dreams as I do for the people who follow God. And Nathaniel replies, but you don't know me. And Jesus says one day, Nathaniel, long before Philip called you here, I saw you under the fig tree. Lots of scholars have different interpretations for what this means, but to me, I've always pictured it as a moment where Jesus smiles, places a hand on his shoulder, and says, you're wrong. I've seen you, I hear you, I know you, Nathaniel. I do know you. And friends, to be known by Jesus is to be loved by him. Tim Keller says it this way, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. And so Nathaniel hears what he needs more than anything, feels heard and seen and understood for the first time in a long time, and in those few statements from his rabbi named Jesus, he experiences a glimpse of, of simplified and decluttered and deconstructed faith that he's been after for a long time. A faith not covered up with layers and layers of interpretation and tradition, but a faith centered on the care and love of a fellow human being. And in that moment, he immediately knows who he is talking to. Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Messiah. You're the guy. You get it. And Jesus looks back at him and says, you ain't seen nothing yet. And in turn, Jesus says to Nathaniel the same thing that he has said to Andrew and to Simon Peter and to Philip, follow me. Jesus doesn't ask Nathaniel to describe the laws of the Torah. He doesn't ask him for an outline, the breakdown of the rules of Jewish life. He doesn't ask for a list of essentials and non-essentials. No. Jesus, declared by John in the first verses of the same chapter to be the Logos, the Word made flesh, through whom all things have come into being, the very force of the creation of the earth, in this one moment, he ultimately deconstructs and simplifies the religion of the Jewish people and the desires of the author of the universe into two words, follow me, come and see. And over the course of John's next 20 chapters, Nathaniel is introduced not to a, another religion with observance after observance, but rather a relationship and a friendship with the incarnation of love on earth. And this incarnation says to Nathaniel, follow me. And that same Jesus calls out to us with the same invitation, not an invitation to a system of observances or traditions, but an invitation to a life transformed by a relationship with the resurrected Jesus who loves us. But friends, know that such a life lived with Christ is one that opens itself up to being molded, to being deconstructed of its unnecessaries, leading us more toward what faith is and less toward what faith is not. Should you choose to follow Jesus, God will begin to shape your life in such a way so that it is unrecognizable from how it was before, filled less with clutter and more with the love of God. And it may be difficult, it may be hard, being reshaped often is, growth is hard, but such is the work of God. I just pray that we might be willing. Tomorrow, we remember Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. 
and what he did for civil rights. Of course, Martin Luther King didn't want to take up the task of civil rights. His family didn't want him to do it. And late one night, there's a story that goes like this, late one night in January 1956, the phone rang at the parsonage of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. The 20, he was 27, the 27-year-old pastor picked up the phone and the voice on the line was menacing. It said, we're tired of you and your mess. And if you're not out of this town and out of your house in three days, we're going to blow your house up and blow your brains out. And the mess he was referring to was the Montgomery bus boycott that started a month earlier when an exhausted Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat to a white man. And after the call, Martin sat in his kitchen with a heavy heart. He had a decision to make. This was a, this was a big transition moment between the old and the new. And at first... He tried to figure a way out for himself and his family. He said, if I could have left Montgomery without looking like a coward, I would have. And then something happened. As he began to pray out loud, he remembered the one who had originally said to him, follow me. And in his prayer, he heard a voice calling him by name, a purer, stronger voice than the one he'd heard on the phone. Martin Luther, stand up for truth. Stand up for justice, stand up for righteousness. And his life became devoted to deconstruction. (laughs) The deconstruction of laws and hatred and racism in order that God might reconstruct a world more in line with his kingdom. But all from a man willing to allow God to reconstruct him. Friends, Jesus' arrival in Advent and at Christmas is the great deconstruction, the moment when God decided to undo the way things had been going and to set a new, simpler path for the way things that should be. So may you know that life is a series of transitions and changes and deconstructions. May you know that such is the narrative of Scripture filled with people who continually meet a God who calls them to rethink, to rebuild, and to reconstruct more and more according to his intention for the world. And you know that Jesus came to do just that and he continues to attempt that work within our hearts. And may you open your heart to God that he might, be, that he might do a little spring cleaning, that he might declutter and deconstruct the things within you and me that make it hard for God's light to shine through. May this new year be marked by a God who is reconstructing us to look a little more like him every single day. And may you be willing to let God do that work. Let us pray. Gracious God, we confess to you this morning that we are sinful people, that we fall short so many times. I pray that in those moments, O oh God, that you would begin to do the reshaping work that you are so good at doing. Deconstruct our hearts, O God. Declutter them. Make room so that there is room for you and there is room for others. Reconstruct us, O God, and remind us that we were made in your image and that that is the hope 
reconstruct us to be like you, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.